1: welcome to new books in critical theory this is a podcast that's part of the new books network on this episode i'm talking to laura clancy about running the family firm how the monarchy manages its image and our money so welcome to the podcast
0: hi thank you for having me
1: um i I don't want to sort of immediately date the podcast um but this book couldn't be better timed (laughs) in a week where britain is seeing the celebration um of the queen's um jubilee i have immediately forgotten which jubilee it is
0: platinum um, I know that. Platinum,
1: <laughs> which is 70 years
0: yeah
1: yeah um and all of the things like literally all of the things that the book covers are front and center in front of us um you know almost kind of every minute of of every day mm. certainly you know in terms of how the media is is discussing this in terms of some of the things the book talks about right at the very end, actually, with particular royal personalities, um, even, you know, kind of physically um, on our streets and in in our kind of public spaces and stuff like that. But at the same time, and, and this is how I'd like to sort of introduce the book, this isn't a book that's just about a particular moment in time, actually. I think it's a book that speaks to you know really kind of like long-standing issues in british society mm-hmm. and is going to be really relevant you know moving forward um in, into the years and, and probably decades that that come and i guess that the place to start really is the book is explicit about we should think about the monarchy in terms of its relationship to financial capitalism which is something that really we don't think about usually and i'm really keen to hear a bit about sort of what that means you know what does financial capitalism what, what what does monarchy's relationship to it means and why it is we don't usually think of the monarchy like that
0: yeah so really I mean I came to this topic by um kind of thinking about elites really that's kind of my background um I think about the super rich and however we're welcome to define that um and really it was thinking about how the monarchy is like just not included in that kind of conversation um, so there's loads of there's really brilliant academic work on the elites, but there's there's very little that you know puts monarchy and aristocracy actually within that conversation. Um, and often what you'll hear in commentary in the mainstream press, even in like quite left wing press actually, is that the monarchy is kind of this very traditional, very archaic, um, you know, institution that you're pulled to kind of status quo, but that isn't really relevant. Um, to contemporary conversations and that they, they're too old-fashioned to understand you know how how things work nowadays um but then actually kind of my argument is for them to have survived this long they had they have to have adapted right they kind of ha- had to adapt to these different points in in society and we can see that you know all throughout the years even if you go back and think well you know they attach themselves to um, mercantile capitalism and slavery and all of these things um, and then kind of shifted throughout the years to the point we are now where we're in a moment of kind of financial capitalism, these global multinational corporations and um, that are taking up the world's wealth. Um, and it got me thinking how the monarchy fits in with that. And really the key moment for me, which was really well-timed for me actually when I was writing this, was um, when the Paradise Papers came out. Um, so this was a Guardian investigation um, into these companies who do offshore holdings in order to um, kind of avoid certain types of tax, uh, tax sorry. And um, the Duchy of Lancaster was included in that um, as, as, as holding money offshore. So just thinking about, you know, how that means they're kind of using their wealth and moving their wealth in the same ways as people like Nike, for example, who are also um, in that same set of papers as well
1: i mean one thing in there immediately that strikes me is the book talks about it's in the title but also you know it's in the book the book talks about the monarchy as a firm Mm. and immediately when you're talking about you know global flows of capitalism and uh you know transnational corporations like 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 nike and and stuff like this you're talking about firms corporations Mm. Mm. you're not talking about families almost so um, i I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the exact language but you know you, you talk about things like it has an infrastructure it's you know we should think of it as having like worker relations yeah. you know it's got a political economy to it you know it's got particular kind of legal status and and specific um financial arrangements and I, I guess this kind of idea of the monarchy as a firm is is one of the books you know sort of both unique contributions and actually you know one of the reasons that the book has got this sort of longevity and I, I wonder if you could kind of unpack this idea of the monarchy as a firm for me
0: yeah well that you, what you said is exactly why i kind of i thought i gave it this name really and kind of thought of the firm so the firm is actually i mean they use it as like an informal nickname apparently the queen uses it um it's kind of a reference um and actually that you know i kind of looked at the etymology of that term and it's really kind of caught up with business really um and, and nowadays corporate capital so i kind of flipped on its head and used it to describe it. To try and um, disrupt these kind of common sense understandings of what monarchy is really, Um, because when we say the monarchy or we say the royal family, we get a very particular image in our head. Whereas if you start giving it a different name, like the firm, and you start thinking about in those terms, in terms of well, there's people working for it, there's you know wage labour attached to it, there's wealth coming in there's these different kind of arms so that they get money from so the sovereign grant and there's all the estates there's all the duchies and all of this and um, so it's a kind of a way of unpacking it as an institution it's also a way of getting it so one of the key things i talk about in the book is this idea of um front, front stage and backstage so i kind of say you know what you open the podcast with thinking about the jubilee and big events that's the front stage um, but like any corporate business, there's also a backstage where there's these kind of, you know, staff who do all the work and there's, you know, all this money that goes in. So it's also a way of kind of getting at that, thinking about what, you know, what's behind the stage, curtain, and what's going on behind the scenes of what we normally see.
1: I mean, the, the other thing about front stage is the relationship with media. Mm. And, you know, we have a sort of like the ultimate expression of front stage, which is um both how the monarchy is represented in media but also how the monarchy as a firm tries to kind of manage the media Mm. and i I was really fascinated by um you, you know you've got some fairly kind of classic analysis of things like the coronation and you know these sort of like big set pieces but also you talk a lot about um royal social media which is kind of like a combination of incredibly you know, fascinating, well-managed use of social media and also kind of like really cringe
0: yeah. <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, it's true.
1: And, and I'm sort of really interested in this, you know, sort of management of front stage, what the relationship with the media is, you know, how mm. the media is, I guess, kind of, you know, controlled and complicit at the same time.
0: Yeah, and well, to me, so the, the kind of the basis of the book really is kind of very kind of Stuart Hall, British cultural studies, thinking about that idea of consent and thinking about the idea of ideology. So thinking about how the media is kind of a vehicle through which the monarchy um, produces, uh, produces consent for its own continuation. Um, and to me, things like social media nowadays, um, the book also talks about the coronation in television. So kind of how television, live television was quite a new medium at the time. Um, And there was kind of a lot of debate about whether the monarchy should engage with that or not and kind of what that might do. And of course, they decided to and it was a huge success and it gave access to them um, in a slightly new way. I think it gave people opportunity to kind of see what they were meant to be believing in. It made it something tangible. Um, And I think nowadays, probably social media is the equivalent of that. and I think, I think what social media does, and I, I, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking particularly about um, Prince William and Kate Middleton's account that's run by their staff. Um, what it does is it gives this idea of intimacy. Um, so you kind of see all these pictures of them with the children. You know, there's ones of them taking the children to school. There's ones of them all playing in the garden. Um, and it's like it's positioned as like this family photo album. So it's giving this idea of kind of intimacy and access and like we have exclusive um, we're kind of seeing it as something exclusive about about their family and we're part of their family. But then my argument is of course that's very staged access. So it's not as though you know Kate Middleton is literally you know on a phone tweeting a self-cooking dinner and it's not that it's not the same kind of thing we see from celebrities, for example. Um, it's kind of it's very staged. it's you know particular shots taken at a particular time for particular purposes. And it also gets into the kind of agreements they have with the media. Um, so, for example, if they go on uh, some holidays, they'll invite a couple of photographers to take um, stage photographs, which they'll then release to all the press um, and then on the agreement that they'll leave them alone for the rest of the holiday. So it's this kind of very, very kind of stage, very choreographed access that gives an idea that we're getting this kind of intimate look at them that I think is really important to that process of producing consent.
1: I mean, Kate Middleton is um, a sort of central character um, in the book, and um, we we might actually jump really sort of uh, forward and, and carry on talking about her and and the way that you know she is kind of presented and, and almost you know curated on social media. You, you later on in the book you talk about the idea that the firm has been um, Middletonianized, mm. um, that there's a Middletonianization. Uh, of this institution. And I was fascinated by that because it, it, it's, as you, you've said earlier, you know, it's one of the ways that the institution changes to stay relevant, but it's also how a fairly static set of, you know, sort of middle-class heteronormative values carry on mm-hmm. underpinning what, what the institution is, even if it seems as if it's changing. And I'm fascinated to hear a bit more about Middletonianization and um, kind of what it means and, and how, I suppose, as you've said already, you know, in terms of social media, how it's practiced as
0: well. Yeah. I mean, to me, that that that, that term is kind of getting this idea of social class. Um, and I think we can see that in other people in the roles as well. But I think Kate is a particularly interesting example. The way in which she was positioned as ordinary. Um, and, you know, there was newspaper headlines that called her a commoner around the time of the wedding. Well, of course, her family's a, you know, a family are multimillionaires. Um, but I suppose relate, related to the royal family, if we're doing it that way, then perhaps... Um, But I think there's something around um, how, again, how the monarchy is kind of reproducing the popular imagination. Um, And I guess, you know, even 50 years ago, they could get away with kind of marrying aristocrats and staying with their own social class group, if you will. Um, But I think nowadays when we've seen, you know, a lean towards kind of a popular understanding of meritocracy as an ideology and how, you know, people, there's a lot of talk around, when we, when we talk about billionaires and how people legitimate the wealth of billionaires, they talk about, oh, they, they worked really hard, right? They set up their own business. They, they work so hard for years. They deserve that wealth. Um, and to me, I think the monarchy needed to tap into that. They kind of couldn't get away with this kind of, it being around kind of hereditary and it's just how things are. They kind of needed to tap into that popular, popular imagination um, and kind of make themselves seem accessible. Um, like anybody can kind of be royal if you're in the right place at the right time. And Kate, I think Kate really did that. Kate was a vehicle for that. So showing how, you know, there's a lot, there was a lot of talk around her, you know, meeting William at, at university and how they fell in love and that very kind of um, class mobility kind of storyline that I think she really embodies. Um, and to me, that's that's really important um, for making the monarchy fit for purpose for this particular time um and you can see you can still see that playing out on the social media like i said them kind of them positioned as a very middle class um or middle class family in the way they kind of look after their children we very rarely for example see nannies in any pictures at least not pictures they release anyway uh, even though we know there's a whole team of them um so that the way that's kind of set up you know as this kind of aspirational family i suppose
1: not anyone can be part of the monarchy, yeah. and, and again, you, you know, um, the, the book, as you mentioned, draws, you know, from that sort of lineage of British cultural studies, um, and it, it is a profoundly sort of sociological book. But it's almost kind of inescapable that you end up um, foregrounding particular people and personalities as as examples of of particular structural failings of the institution. Mm. And the really obvious contrast is uh, Meghan Markle Mm. and Kate Middleton. Uh, And I was fascinated by how, you you know, you avoid a series of, you know, sort of cliches in in this analysis. And you try and focus on both how the firm really, you know, use this as a moment of of, um, diversity capitalism um as you call it but also how it tells us that you know there are real kind of limits to the way the institution changes to fit in with contemporary life
0: Mm. i mean i think megan's a really a really fascinating example and it's quite hard to theorize because it's moving so quickly and it's kind of happening which is part of the problem with media studies work isn't it um I, th- I think Megan, in lots of ways, Megan does quite similar things to Kate. You know, she's kind of seen as a, she was, I mean, she was a celebrity. It's kind of tapping into another version of anyone can join the royal family. And the royal family are attached to these different kind of networks in society. Um, but she was also, I mean, you know, she was a millionaire. She had her own career. She's very different in that, you know, from Kate, all we see is what her royal self. That's all we really know about her. Um, whereas Megan had this entirely constructed, you know, public persona. Um, And I think that that's one thing that made it quite hard, I think, for her to kind of integrate into the royal family, because we kind of can put all of these narratives on her, like when she, you know, she was very publicly anti-Brexit, for example. Um, And of course, the royal family are meant to be politically neutral. Um, But of course, I mean, with Meghan, there's always going to be the issue of, of race. So when I started writing the Meghan chapter, we were kind of coming out of the the royal wedding, a wedding to Harry, and there was very much this talk around how she was going to modernise the institution, you know, how it was like a new dawn. It was showing how the monarchy was really progressive. Um, You know, there's loads of really positive newspaper coverage about it. And then it very quickly took a very steep downward turn, um, particularly in kind of the tabloid media in terms of quite a very kind of racist coverage, particularly comparing to, coverage that kate got so there's that really famous example of um there was a newspaper headline of kate middleton um liking avocados, and it was talking about how oh she looks you know she's looking after her baby she's into healthy food and then there was a headline about Meghan markle liking avocados and it was that she was fueling drought and poverty in the areas where avocados are grown so these kind of those really obvious ones but also more kind of um you know subtle examples i guess um, so I kind of, my argument about Meghan is, you know, how all of that, you know, she was kind of meant to, my position was she was brought in to do that work of kind of making the institution appear progressive um, and making it seem like it's fit for kind of, you know, multicultural Britain as it is now. Um, but that, that kind of, that image was almost too much for the monarchy to contain. It was too much to upon one woman for one, but it was also kind of too much symbolism. Um, for them to possibly contain because you know there's these kind of thousands of years of history of colonialism and racism and all of these things built into that institution that kind of the presence of one mixed-race woman isn't going to fix overnight so rather than kind of mitigating some of those histories my argument is that Megan merely or Megan's presence this isn't about Megan as an individual Megan's presence kind of brought those just further into view because um, it kind of started to make us question and think about issues of race in their royal family. And then, of course, you know, there was their, their Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah Winfrey, which happened, I think it was like two weeks after I submitted this manuscript. Frustrating, <laughs> um, But, you know, how that really shone a light on, I mean, it was an incredible interview, you know, how it really kind of shed a light on how institutional racism might still be at work today as well.
1: I mean, there's fascinating stuff. To foreground this, um, and you know, there's loads of different ways we, we could sort of um, get deeper into it, and and a couple of things I, I actually connect to these questions about the sort of the role of, um, as you say, you know, it's not one person, you know, the, these are, um, it's not one personality, you know, the, these are important sort of structural positions in in contemporary British society, and and a good example of, of that actually is the Queen herself, mm. and um i guess you know just as we've talked about the questions of race and megan and how race is represented and how you know the idea of a kind of like um post-racial monarchy really sort of you know runs into the reality of um some institutional racism that's um you know quite clearly captured both in the media but but within the institution we also see uh, i guess a similar set of um themes when we think about the queen's role in society. Um, And there are lots of different sort of examples in in the book. Um, But one of them I was really struck by uh, was a long discussion about the idea of the queen's body Mm-hmm. um and both you know how it's represented how things like power is represented uh recently in, in in the uk um you know we saw the queen unable to fill a civic duty and the crown standing in proxy for her like you know literally the big jeweled helmet yeah. that she wears, you know sort of standing in proxy for her and, and why does i guess the kind of the royal body matter um in in british politics
0: and in british society yeah, so that chapter—I mean, that chapter um, that you're talking about—is tied up with um, the Scottish referendum and the way in which the Queen's body was used as symbolic, um, as a kind of a United Kingdom. So, you know, when the when the Scottish referendum um, didn't go through, her image was kind of used as a way to talk about how the kind of country is coming together. Um, so, from that, I kind of got two ideas of the of the monarch's body as as politically symbolic and socially symbolic and how we can kind of project meaning and particular ideas of what Britain is and what Britain isn't onto that particular kind of symbolic body. And I mean there's a lot of um you know political philosophy that talks about the, the monarch having two bodies. So there's their natural body, which is them as a as a physical person, right? Them as a kind of moving, breathing person. But then there's also the symbolic body that's um is about what they're invested with in terms of power and in terms of um queenship if that's the right word um in kind of in, in, ter- in terms of royalty um, and what that what that symbolism might mean so I kind of split off the thought about that and I agree you can see it really clearly in that um in the state opening of parliament where I think you could really see it as well and I found this really interesting I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago there was a state opening of parliament where the queen wore a blue outfit with a and a blue hat with yellow flowers on it and it was around the time of, of Brexit and people said, oh, you know, the flag, look, her hat looks like the EU flag. It must mean that she supports the EU and she doesn't want Brexit to happen. So just that was really interesting in terms of the ways in which, you know, the monarch's body is, is kind of, you can read anything onto it and it comes to symbolise um, kind of the, the beliefs and the ideologies of the citizens, I suppose, and how it can kind of, it can kind of you know, imbibe all of those different things because it's a symbolic Symbolic entity. And also, I suppose part of that is helped by the fact that, you know, we very rarely see the Queen do an interview. We, we don't really know what she thinks about anything. There's, there's these little rumours, but not really. Um, and we can almost like read anything onto her in a way. And I think that's where her kind of the power of her symbolism comes from, um, in that she kind of has never given those political opinions. So anyone can read anything onto her um, and kind of have her symbolise any of these things. And I think that's incredibly powerful actually you know in a you know in a society that if you're the figurehead if anyone can read anything they want on TV, you're covering so many different bases as well
1: but i mean we, we can sort of like uh, i was going to say we can divine uh, some of their opinions but that, that's like probably not not the right word in, in terms of um monarchy and sort of um, theories of monarchy, but but we can get a sense of, I guess, what the institution thinks, particularly um, through, uh, you know, we've seen when we've been discussing race and we, we've been discussing particular values that come through on, on social media. But actually there are visions for Britain that have, you know, physical expressions in, in terms of um, the royal estates, in terms of royal buildings. Yeah. Um, and one of the things you, you try and highlight is that, you know, even with, those um, kind of chameleon-like moments for the institution where they try and change to fit in with uh, prevailing trends in in modern British society, we can still see quite regressive and quite conservative um, visions for what Britain should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of these things uh, comes up in in the discussion of Poundbury, um, which is a a fascinating kind of mini case study, and I guess kind of takes us a bit beyond actually the Queen and, and into um, some of the ways that um, the um, royal children have particular views and particular uh, positions in contemporary British society as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about Poundbury all day. I think it's incredible. If people have a chance to go do, it's, it's, it's so interesting um, and strange. <laughs> um, so Poundbury is um, so it's an extension to the town of Dorchester um, and it was built on Duchy of Cornwall land. So um, Charles is the uh, Duke of Cornwall. Um, and it was built it, the land was released to the council for them to build this on the on the agreement that Charles could design it. so he he built he built Pambu based on um, his belief, particular beliefs in architecture. Um, so he's, he's kind of waged a war on modernist architecture for quite a long time um calling it ugly and all of these things, which is quite interesting when you think of kind of the history of modernist architecture as being about, equality basically has been about kind of getting rid of the hidden vestibules for staff to climb down and you know glass you know glass everywhere and kind of and even post-war kind of getting rid of slums for example and building these big high-rise buildings it was about equality so his kind of war on that is quite interesting anyway Um and he's kind of positioned as this kind of you know green warrior thinking about you know he talks about restoring the past and restoring the harmony to the country and um, but then he's attacking an architecture that is associated with you know, particular types of, of progressive politics, which is quite interesting. Um, so is built on this new urbanist architectural principles, which is the he, he described as kind of the opposite of modernism, um, which is kind of very, you know, old buildings, they're designed to look old. They're designed to kind of draw on particular parts of history. Uh, you know, they've got Roman numerals on the side of them, to say when they were built. So it looks like they were built in like 1650, but actually it says 2015. Um, so that kind of very pastiche, very kind of fake, um the, the the local store so it's designed to look like a little village corner store you know very old-fashioned pillars and all of this but you go in and it's actually a branch of a branch of Budgens, which is just designed <laughs> to look like this really old-fashioned building um so kind of the ways you know how that and how that's invested in particular types of of, of class inequality as well and It's around accessibility. Um, so part of it is like it restricts car access because cars are meant to be ugly and make the environment ugly and it does gravel paths because that's prettier, but of course, you can't push a wheelchair or push a pram down a gravel path. So kind of how it restricts, you know, spaces to particular kinds of bodies, um and kind of reinvests us with this kind of very old fashioned, you know, version of Britain that was there was about class inequality that was about like the landlord and the surf and all of those things um so i think it's interesting how child you know it very much paints himself as this kind of eco worry of the future but actually is recreating these spaces that are just bringing us back to a past
1: i mean that the bringing back to the past is, is is a sort of fascinating reoccurring uh theme throughout the book and, and i guess um if we were sort of um trying to sum up the book which is slightly impossible because there's so many examples and, and so much going on. It might be this moment which has brought, you know, the monarchy together with um, what you describe as philanthropic capitalism mm-hmm. um, in, in the form of the Invictus Games. And it, it's, you were saying about, you know, the sort of the Oprah interview dropping um, shortly after the book had um, been been wrapped up. And, and the Invictus Games is, is fascinating as well because on the one hand, you've got... Um, something that, you know, Harry was the kind of driving force for, um, but, you know, is now, I guess a kind of fairly well-established, um, you know, event that's, that's happens almost kind of without him. And it is, you know, one of these ways that the institution kind of says, we're great guys, you know, we're lovely people, (laughs) we're sort of giving something back whilst at the same time, you know, as you've said with, uh, Poundbury, there are quite sort of, you know, um, regressive and, and quite sort of conservative uh, attitudes in, in some ways mm. and it you know very much draws attention away from hang on you know what are the sort of financial constitutional political arrangements um that the monarchy's got so what are the invictus games and, and, I, and I guess kind of like how do they sort of sum up this story that the book is trying to
0: tell yes yeah, so the invictus games um is a sporting event that's it's very similar to the idea of help for heroes and um, where there's kind of these multinational sports teams of um individuals who have been injured in in wars um all around the world and they come together to do um various kind of sporting events and it's headed by prince harry who of course um fought went to iraq um and fought in that war um uh, and if anyone's interested in the book, I kind of tell a story around that. It's kind of a corporate war, and and Harry's place within that as well. I won't go into that now. Um, but for me, what the Invictus Games kind of summarizes um, this idea of duty. So what we often see, you know, when we hear about the royals, is this idea that you know they, they work really hard, they're doing their duty, they don't want to do their job. But, you know, it, it's part of it's part of their duties, and part a big part of that is, is charity work and. Um, philanthropy. Um, And Invictus Games is, you know, positioned as that. It's positioned as kind of, you know, um, philanthropy for these injured soldiers, giving them purpose and all of this, which I'm certainly not disputing. And my analysis is in no way to kind of minimise, I'm sure, the very positive effects on those individuals. Um, But my particular argument around Invictus is that um, a lot of the work is around the Afghanistan um, and Iraqi wars. Um, which, you know, in the last few years, we've seen um, various kind of papers being published that show that that war was not entirely legal. Um, it wasn't really a national war fought for kind of national purposes. Um, it was, you know, positioned as kind of this war on terror and terrorism a thing, right? So it's kind of this very difficult to pinpoint. Um, so how Invictus Games kind of feeds into that process of legitimating that war um, and legitimating that process. Um, and legitimating kind of the cap- the capital gains that came from that war um, in terms of, you know, there's various kind of accounts that suggest it was all about kind of getting oil and all of these things. And um, so how it kind of it repositions what was essentially a corporate war into this idea of kind of nationalism um, and, and makes it around, you know, kind of national identity of those issues, which is a way of legitimating um, that, that whole situation. Um, so my argument around evictus is that kind of, especially with the, with the presence of Prince Harry, right. As kind of, well, (laughs) was, um, you know, a member of the royal family kind of national nationally symbolic, you know, his presence within that is a way of kind of making that into this idea, you know, very powerful idea of nationalism. Um, while also of course being useful for the royal family because they can tap into that idea of, oh, well, you know, we did really well. um, we're doing really good things we're working really hard we're, we're doing all of these you know great initiatives that have really positive effects on people therefore we kind of deserve our position yeah. um, and that's what you will often see you know in, in the newspapers and mainstream mainstream media what you'll often see is oh you know that well the queen did 346 you know whatever engagements this year right it's a kind of way of quantifying their work and therefore legitimating the fact that they you know apparently seem to work hard and all of these things which of course then legitimates their position because um, it makes it seem as though the wealth they get is deserved, and they deserve the wage, and so on. Um, so my argument is kind of philanthropy that is, is a really key way in which we kind of see the monarchy being reproduced. And then of course the media, going back to the media, will then co- go and cover all of those charity visits because they'll, you know, they'll always go along to them. The front page will be, you know, this royal did this charity event yesterday, and again that's kind of reproducing the idea of doing good, right, and giving back, giving something back to society.
1: I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? They're a sort of slightly slippery subject because there is, you know, this sense of, um, you know, there are these positive social contributions. And yet, these positive social contributions, in some ways, you know, if they're not obscuring the interrelationships with most of the kind of structural social problems we've got in British and actually global society, then certainly, you know, they're. Displacing where yeah. some of the discussion yeah, should and be. Sorry, yeah, I should have
0: said that as well. And how um, you know the fact that this charity is is doing the work of helping injured soldiers when the state has long been accused of giving them absolutely no help. You know the amount of home um, soldiers who are now homeless, for example, the figures are shocking. So how that kind of you know other charities coming in and doing that work really feeds into that kind of neoliberal state where you know the, the people are doing the work and the state can kind of just let that happen as well.
1: Yeah, and, and that actually was was going to set up, I guess, both the conclusions of the book, but also um, my, my last question, really, which is why does the monarchy matter here? You know, it, it's really clear that, um, you know, there are loads of things that, are, you know, at, at least need to be reformed about the institution. Mm. Um, but actually there's, you know, a, a real kind of central question about in some ways, I guess, why sociology is not, paid attention to the monarchy um, in in ways that should, but also, you know, sort of more generally, both at this moment, but also um, historically and and into the future, why the monarchy matters.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the book, and we've gone through a a few examples here and there are millions more, I kind of had to edit it down and I attached particular royals to particular ideas to try and uh, simplify the story, I suppose. I think for me... um, I think it's really fascinating that sociology isn't interested in the monarchy, actually, and kind of baffling. Um, and I still kind of get the question, well, why are you researching that? You know, there are, there are much more, you know, there's all these other things going on. And I've had people say, you know, there are much more important things to be worrying about, suggesting kind of poverty and homelessness and all of these things. And my kind of answer to that and what I set the book up with, actually, I say, you know, monarchy is behind all of those things. Um, in a society, you know, people always say, with the British, are obsessed with class, well, is it any wonder if we're in a society where kind of class hierarchy is literally built into our very system, you know, we're meant to believe that these people are above us um, and then we're kind of meant to be subservient to that. Um, So that kind of, you know, class inequality is literally built into who we are. That's, you know, people say the monarchy is the thing where most symbols Britain the most. Well, great. So class inequality symbolizes Britain the most then. Um, So my kind of argument is that it's, you can't you can't talk about poverty. You can't talk about all of these things that are apparently more important without discussing the monarchy as part of that because they kind of uphold that entire system. To me, you know, they create the conditions within which um, class inequality can can exist in this in this country. Um, you know, we have things like the aristocracy and things like that, for instance. Well, all of those are kind of caught up within the same story. Um, so I think for me, and I think that, you know, the monarchy talks to all sorts of different issues so there we've kind of talked about you know abdicating the state of you know, of responsibility for example for uh, taking responsibility for its citizens and you you know we can see the world doing that through charity work for example the different organizations they go to lots of them have been set up because the state has failed to protect its citizens we can see that in issues of national identity and how that's caught up with kind of this monarch and the, symbol, the, the symbolism of that when we think you know hundreds of years of you know building that through various kind of images and how that's very white you know it's it's very patriarchal even if it's a woman it's it's still very patriarchal it speaks to you know issues around gender and gender inequality it speaks to issues of colonialism and colonialist histories and how we think about the empire and you know it's not unattached in my opinion from all these polls that say so many uh, people in Britain are proud of the empire because of that kind of romanticization of that history um, so for me, kind of you know why we should be interested in monarchy is because it's 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 caught up in all of these different things um and we can kind of you know we can we can look at it and kind of speak to all of these different elements in society um and so you know for me kind of having that as as the basis for how we start to think about Britain and what Britain is and all of those different questions they're absolutely essential to that
1: The obvious um question that comes from that is. So you're going to do loads more work on this then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 Just it mean. Is.
1: Or, I mean, to, to be fair, one, one of the things about writing a book is there is an element of kind of closure, even uh, a book that has, you know, sort of an immediate contemporary relevance. There's always an element of, of closure with writing and, and finishing yeah. a book. Are, are you thinking in terms of sort of doing something related, something completely different? Where next in, in terms of your own work?
0: Yeah, what I'd like to do, um, and if anyone's listening and would like to discuss it, I'd be really interested to, um, is thinking about republicanism. So thinking about how, you know, we're still in a position where to say you're a republican is like pretty taboo, um, to kind of outwardly criticise the monarchy. So I did, I just did an interview actually with um, Radio BBC Radio 5 Live. Um, talking about how we should get rid of the monarchy. And someone texted in and said that they were really upset that you would that you would dare to disrespect the Queen, particularly in the week of the Jubilee. And that kind of attitude around kind of any criticism of, of the monarchy I find really fascinating. Um, so what I want to think about next is kind of why we don't see republicanism being talked about, you know, why it's not visible in politics, why it's not visible in mainstream press, why even amongst kind of left-wing uh, commentary and media, actually, it's not really that well not that commonly spoken about um it's not kind of built into particular manifestos for example um so i'd really that's what i'd like to think about kind of the invisibility of that and what that means and kind of people's you know people don't understand what a public would look like because why would they because we never talk about it so thinking about some of those issues of how we might be able to think of alternative futures